welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fast Talk. I'm Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined as always by my affable and intelligent co-host, Coach Trevor Connor. Today, it's all about power. First, We'll touch upon the history of power and how it has fundamentally changed the sport of cycling and, more importantly, how we train. When did the use of power first appear? Who were the first to use it? And how did the pioneers of power go from scratching their heads over what 300 watts meant to today? With the many sophisticated metrics we take for granted like TSS, FTP, and performance management charts. We're lucky to have as our main guest someone who has been at the center of training with power since its inception, Hunter Allen, a veteran coach who, along with Dr. Andrew Coggin, wrote the original book on training with power way back in 2006. That book has now been translated into 20 different languages and has recently started selling throughout Asia. Some of the other topics we'll touch upon today include a conference in 2000 where the first seminar on training with power was given. This is when all the big names in power first got together, including Hunter, Dr. Coggin, Dean Golich, Dr. Alan Lim, and Kevin Williams. The, it is the origin story, per se, of power and training. Next, we'll discuss how this group pulled together their expertise to develop ways of analyzing power and the original power-based training software. From there, we'll move to the pros and cons of training with power versus heart rate. And finally, we'll touch upon where the next revolutions in training may happen including virtual racing. In this episode, we'll also hear from Dean Golich, who's now a head coach at Carmichael Training Systems and has worked for years with world champion and world tour caliber cyclists. For his master's thesis, he did some of the original research using power meters outside of the lab. So, are you ready? You want some power? Let's make you fast. Hey, Trevor, I heard you ride a bike. Is that true? Uh, sometimes, maybe. Do you ever go for runs? Uh, yes, and they are painfully slow. I bet they are. I, I can only imagine. you ever swim? No. No, I actually did a triathlon a few years ago and discovered I was faster walking along the bottom oh, of the pool than swimming. What about sinking? Do you, do you ever sink? Well, that was part of walking along the bottom of the pool now, wasn't it? <laughs> there you go. Hey, well, it doesn't matter whether you're a runner, a cyclist, a swimmer, a triathlete. You want to head over to Health IQ's website. They're a life insurance company that specializes in healthy, active people like you. They're able to give us favorable quotes on life insurance, and they have a special website just for Fast Talk listeners. That's www.fastdoc.com healthiq.com slash fast talk while you're over there you can submit race results screen grabs of your strava or map my run account or any other proof you have that you are indeed a regular cyclist runner or fit person and you'll get a better quote it's pretty awesome yeah except i think if i put my runs or my swims up there they're gonna be like this guy's on his deathbed <laughs> oh boy we're not giving well, him insurance just, just put the cycling results up there <laughs> that i can do Welcome to the podcast, Hunter Allen. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, thanks a lot, guys. I'm glad to be here. 
Hey, you know, uh, it's been a long journey and a lot of fun. I started training with power back in 1998-99 before there was any of the amazing tools we have now. That uh, was incredible in terms of the ability to just understand the data and figure out the data, but we didn't know. We didn't understand it. We didn't know exactly what it was. So we spent years and years learning how to understand it, developing tools, hit and miss, trial and error, all those things to try and figure this data out. But the history of it is, uh, has been really exciting all along. What is your background personally? How, how long have you been a coach? How many people have you coached in your life with power, that sort of information? Yeah, you know, I started coaching in 1995. Uh, I was a pro on the Navigators team and basically just decided, hey, you know, once I retired from cycling and before then, you know, I was coaching some local clients because I didn't have a coach. Uh, and, and so I wanted a coach and I felt like, oh, man, I spent two years just hit and miss and trial and error and making mistakes and, and wasted two years of my life trying to get to the place where I wanted to be. So I knew that I could really shortcut people's time in that that period and so to, and then I had I felt like I had a lot of knowledge on the subject so I wanted to share it because at the time there wasn't a lot of that knowledge and you know the, along the way in, in again 98 I believe 97 maybe I think it's 97 so so back in, in 97 uh, a client of mine came to me and he bought a power tap and said hey um, I got this power tap thing and it's like this hub this really big gnarly gray hub very first one would you coach me with it? And I was like, well, I guess I never had a power meter. Um, just had heart monitors forever, but I can, I can try to give my best shot. And so, you know, instantly, you know, he started sending me numbers, 300 Watts, hundred Watts. I had no clue what that meant. Is that hard? Is that good? Is that bad? You know, what does that mean? So I went and bought a power tap at the time and, uh, I started training it. You know, I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to train again. I'm just going to do the old routes that I've always done. I'm going to do the hill repeats. I'm going to do all the things that I used to do when I was a pro just so I could understand it for myself. And that's a really critical piece of, uh, of information for a coach to have because it's very hard for people to, to do it without really having a relationship with it. Then around, I think it was 99, USA Cycling had the very first ever power seminar uh, in Philadelphia during the uh, core states championships. I think it was maybe called First Union or something like that. I can't remember which bank was was sponsoring at the time. But Andy Coggan was there. Dean Gulch was there. Alan Lim was there. They were the three presenters. I went with my athlete, Kevin Williams. And we basically sat in this one room with like 20 other folks and listened to these guys talk. And the gist of the talk was there's all the stuff we can do with it, but we don't have the software to do it, to, to analyze it, to really understand it. And Kevin is a brilliant programmer. And over lunch, he was like, man, I can make this software. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, I can make this software. I'm like, well, let's do it. So we started playing around really just to make it easier on, on me and made a piece of software. He made a piece of software so that we could just... All we wanted to do was basically mark up an interval, drag a range across a, uh, a section of data, and then stop it and say, what's the average for this interval, this 10-minute section or five-minute or two-minute or whatever? And then we built some charts from that and blah, blah, blah. And uh, all of a sudden, it was around, I mean, really, we messed around with it for a couple of years, just really a hobby thing. Then we got a little more serious in 2002. We actually went to PowerTap. And said, hey, guys, 
we've got a really cool piece of software. Would you be interested in buying it? And so we went up there and made a presentation in Wisconsin. And, and I love these guys and they're great. But that, you know, at the time, they didn't really know what they had or didn't have. And uh, they kind of laughed at us. And, and, you know, we gave them, we said, hey, we'll sell to you for 100,000 bucks. And they said, no way, man, we'll give you 30. <laughs> we were like, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> so we walked away from that deal, one of the best decisions of my life. <laughs> and, right. You know, and then that's when we really got serious and we launched Cycling Peak Software August, I believe, the 4th, 2003. And uh, really, you know, we again, we didn't know we we're going to sell 100 copies, 10 copies, you know, what we we're going to sell, 1,000 copies, I had no idea. And, and all of a sudden, it just instantly, you know, everybody on the Wattage Forum, that's really where we were all hanging out on this forum. And everybody on the Wattage Forum bought it. They became all of our super loyal clients and such. And then uh, Dirk Friel and Gear Fisher and Joe Friel had uh, trainingbible.com. And they came along and said, hey, you know, you guys have all the analytics and the desktop stuff. We've got the coaching tools and the web stuff. What if we come together and, and combine forces? And so I think it was around 2005, we took Cycling Peak software and Training Bible became Training Peaks. And so Kevin and I became owners of uh, Training Peaks at that time. And uh, yeah, that was a big, big watershed moment there. You talked about that uh, conference in 1999. And I've had several people tell me about that conference. And it just seems like you, you had this really fortuitous, perfect mix of people where you had experienced coaches like you and Dean who saw the potential of this power meter. You knew what you wanted it to show you. Mm -hmm. You had some of the uh, physiologists like Dr. Coggin who could go and try to figure out how to make this power physiological. And then you had a computer programmer. Right. Who could actually figure out how to, how to do all this. It seems like you just had this this perfect storm of the right people at that conference. Yeah. 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 It was definitely a um, pretty neat thing. And, and, you know, of course, nobody really knew and you never know and, and what happens from any of those things. And but at the same time, it was Kevin that said, hey, you know, we really should go to this. It's in Philadelphia. Let's go. And so I said, let's go. And we went up there and, and we just went. And, and again, it was it was super, uh, you know, we were just uh, he and I were riveted and everybody was riveted. We we're all trying to figure it out and having Coggin there. And then Alan Lim talked a lot about the athletes he was working with in Boulder. And out of all of them, really, Dean had the most experience with elite athletes because he had been using SRM since 92, I think. Yeah. When he was working on the national team. Uh, and so he had had a lot, he'd seen a lot of power data, but again, he was using the SRM software, which had no ability to aggregate the data. Like you couldn't figure out if this person was actually getting better unless you, okay, wrote down the numbers on a spreadsheet and then, you know, plotted them on a spreadsheet kind of thing. What are the people at that conference and a key pioneer in those early days of power meters was Dean Golich. He shared with us his memories of those early days. And please, forget the sound quality. Like any good coach, Dean's always on the move and we caught up with him while he was coaching some of his riders at the track. Maybe it was formalized to the public the 2000 i guess it was 2000 conference i mean that's so long ago i don't remember but basically 
that was when a lot of the data was formalized of how we were measuring or analyzed and see what we are looking at. And so Dr. Cogden was doing a lot of the physiological side of it. I actually had the data where a lot of people didn't have the high-level data to, I guess, really understand the demands of the sport. Because up until that point, we never had a direct measure of the sport. We only had heart rate and some lactate measures, but you never knew what the true power demands of the sport. So in 1994, I started as a physiologist for the U.S. cycling team. So basically, Chris Carmichael had purchased the SRMs from Uli Schober, and he called me like two weeks before he hired me and said, listen, I have these SRMs. I guess they measure power. He didn't really know what they were all about, just knew some of the proteins had used them for a couple of years prior to that. So I drove down. I was in university, and I went down to Colorado Springs, and he handed me four SRMs and said, oh, and by the way, tomorrow you're leaving for the Tour de Pont at that time, and you should probably have these on the guy's bike, so at least four of them so we know what you're going to do. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I don't have very much sympathy for any grad students, and I think it's because of that day, because I literally had a two-day drive to learn the, how to download the power meters, how to set them up, and they were in DOS at that time, so they had their own computer that came with them, and it was a DOS computer. So I had to go back and understand DOS and start setting them up and reading the manuals, and the manuals were transcribed from German, so they are translated. From a, Ger- a German person who knew English translated, I'm not a, a person who was fluent in both. So, I mean, I was driving across country with one of the mechanics just sitting in the passenger seat. And at that time, the batteries lasted, I don't know, 30 minutes on a computer. So then I tried to charge it, got there, put them on. They didn't work in the rain at that time. So there was a couple of days, but I got a lot of great data. And that was the first. So that was going to be my master's thesis of writing the demands of the cycling race. So that's kind of how it started for me in 1994. So then once I had all that data for the next couple of years, I did Tour of Austria. I did a number of things and correlated all the data we had been taking with power like uh, lactates and um, heart rates and all that. And then I realized none of those really correlated to the actual power profiles. And that's what I presented at the 2000 conference. Okay. So how didn't they uh, correlate? So there were so many variables, whether it was temperature, fatigue, and on and on and on. They weren't a one-to-one measure that if the power went up, your heart rate went up, or lactate went up with power. Sometimes I get an inverse relationship, you know, five days into a stage race, and some people would get stronger power-wise as they went into a fatigue, what we would consider the fatigue state. So say they were five or eight days into a 10-day stage race, they were actually performing better, but all the indices of fatigue were going up. So then that changed the whole training because we were measuring all those, I guess, metabolic profiles without measuring the actual power or mechanical work profile. At that time, how were you looking at power? Were you seeing this as a tool that was going to revolutionize training or were you just scratching your head saying, I, I can't explain all these relationships? H- how were you seeing it? Well, there was a couple of things. Kind of my first priority is I, I needed to measure the demands of the sport to know how to train for it. Because in a lab, you always measured work. You measured watts or kilojoules. Or, so we were in the lab, we were converted or we were already trained on those terminologies and that, that work. 
but out in the field, no one was measuring it, so you had to try to correlate it. So right away when I did that, then I knew um, what the demands of the sport were and then how to train it. So we still use a lot of the same physiological principles, but we could prescribe the work rates much better. There was no guesswork now. So we didn't have to guess whether you were fatigued at altitude or trained at sea level or whatever the instance was. We knew 200 watts at 200 watts, uphill, downhill, tailwind, headwind. We knew what the actual demands of the training event were and what the demands of the race event were. So that it was a godsend to me. Let's get back to Hunter and some of the first key metrics they developed from all that data that he and Dean collected. No, it was really it was a really interesting time because I mean it was you know, again there were a lot of people trying to figure it out and everybody kind of knew something was there but there was no way to really visualize the data and and that's really what Kevin and I did with Cycling Peaks was built a way to 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 not only just look at a single file but then see what happens over time. Like, you know, is your best five minutes getting better? Is your best one minute getting better? And so that was this, this real revolution of like, wow, you know, we can track all of these changes over time. And at the same time, Coggin, you know, after the, the presentation, you know, that he did in, in 2000 or 99, I can't remember what year it was, but, you know, I, I'd stayed in touch with him and I kind of been pinging him and emailing him back and forth and, hey, you know, can you come on and help us a little bit with the software, et cetera. We're trying to make something from it. You know, my vision back in I don't know, 2002 maybe or so was to eventually get to a place where you could periodize your entire training from your training stress score. So, that was the whole goal was to get to this place of, well, I, we know the work that we can do. We know how many watts. We know how many you know seconds you can hold it. We know all these things. So we should be able to actually periodize by that and come at it from that place. And so I said, hey, Andy, I need a score. I, I need a way to score every ride. And I know that we can do this because you know we're getting this data. We know exactly what it is. We need a score. So he goes away, and two weeks later, he calls up and says, Eureka, I've got it, you know, <laughs> in, in true scientific fashion. <laughs> you know, he said, hey, it's taken me a while to think about this, but at the same time, everybody understands what it's like to do a 40-kilometer time trial. Everybody knows what it's like to beat your threshold for that period of time, and it's generally known that if you can do it for an hour – like you've done a pretty good time. And that's a goal for most cyclists as they get started is to get under 40K for an hour. So let's just make that the gold standard that, you know, you score 100 points in an hour. And that's that's going to be what we call your threshold power is going to be what you can do on the limit for that hour. Uh, and you get 100 points. So it takes the, the thing that we were struggling with, you know, before that, before we had TSS, was kilojoules. And a lot of coaches were, were prescribing workouts by kilojoules. Go and do this many kilojoules of work and do this many kilojoules of work, et cetera. But the problem with kilojoules is that it doesn't take into account intensity. So it's like, okay, well, my grandma, you know, who's 80, she can do a 3,000 kilojoule ride. It may take her a day and a half, right? But she still did the same work. Whereas for me to go out and do a three three thousand kilojoule rod, you know, I got to drill it for five hours. It's a very different intensity. When 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 he when he established, hey, this is 
the FTP is going to be this hour. If we go at 80% of that, then, hey, you know, this is your intensity factor of 0.80 or whatever. And that was then, then we put the intensity factor inside the formula to create training stress score. So now you've got time, you've got intensity in there, you've got your wattage in there, all the stuff combined came up with this nice little number to be training stress score. So all along the way, he realized, and this is probably really what Andy's gotten more recognition for in the scientific world, in the exercise physiology world, is normalized power, because he invented normalized power along the way to take into account the ups and downs. Okay, I did 300 watts for 30 seconds, 10 seconds I go downhill, then I go 300 watts for 30 seconds and 10 seconds downhill, etc. What did your body really feel like? And that was all along the way was the normalized power. But that's really how that vision came about was out of this necessity to say, well, gosh, I want to periodize as coach from this number and get it from there. Finally, it's taken whatever, 10, 12 years to get to that place, but we're there now. And going back to the, the science side of it, you're, you're seeing studies come out now that give Dr. Coggins credit for this. What was, what was really revolutionary was that he took power, which is an external measure. So it tells you how, how hard you're going, but it doesn't really tell you how hard your body's going. So meaning uh, if a rider's putting out 400 watts, we don't know if they're at sub-threshold or if they're absolutely killing themselves. But from what I've seen, Dr. Coggin took this external measure and figured out a way to, to internalize it, to say, here's what's going on in, in the body. And my understanding is this was based on uh, Bannister's TRIMP concept, which was, used heart rate to try to estimate the, the stress and strain on the body and get some sort of estimate of, of here's how hard a, a workout was. Yeah. So he took that. And normalized power is actually... I don't think we need to go into the formula, but he, he uses a 30-second averaging uh, yes. because that's about how long the heart rate responds and, and lactate responds um, yep. and really tried to make power physiological to say, yeah. here's internally what it's doing to your body. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's, it's so interesting because the body has – that 30 seconds is such a weird thing, right? Because there's so many things that happen to our body that have these 30 seconds half-lives, you know, or, or, or respond yep. in 30 seconds. And it's like uh, lactate has a 30-second half-life. And so all of a sudden, heart rate responds in this 30 seconds. And then there's other things that happen in your body in 30 seconds. It's like the, the universe or the creator or whatever you want to call it, you know, gave us a 30 seconds to just breathe. <laughs> yep. And then go. <laughs> but, yeah, and, and that's exactly it. So it's based on really sound science. And, and it also helped with that bridge because heart rate really was the thing, right? I mean, uh, you know, I, I started with a, I think I had one of the first downloadable polar heart rate monitors and downloaded all my data back in the 80s and stuff when those things came out and, uh, and trying to figure out, well, how does this bridge across – at the time, you know, when power started getting getting more and more popular, there were a lot of folks who were like, I'm burning my heart rate monitor. We're having a, yeah. I'm a you know, you know, they were, they were having like, you know, showing stuff, burning their heart rate monitors. I'm never using it again. You know, it's like we have power now. But to me, you nailed it on the head there. Somebody sends me a power file and it's like 200 watts and it goes 200 watts straight across and there's no heart rate data. I, I don't know. Did they go hard? Were they going easy? 
I have no idea. But then if they send me a power file of 200 watts to go straight across and then their heart rate goes to 180 and it's 180 and goes straight across as well, I'm like, you know, they're probably at their threshold. <laughs> you know, yep. They're going hard. Yeah. So for me, you know, heart rate is what I call the intensity of your intention. And, and that really, you know, has been what I've talked about for years and years, you know, the intensity of your intention. How hard are you trying? It is what it is. I mean, it, it is, uh, um, you know, it is just how fast your heart's pumping. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, wow, uh, that, that makes a big difference when we see it. So I'm, I still have all my athletes use their heart monitors. I still use heart monitor. I think it's an, inc- uh, an incredible channel that we still have to use along with cadence and speed and GPS and all these other things. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. I don't think you can see the, the full picture of the athlete without both a heart rate strap and, and a power meter. And every athlete I coach, when they tell me, oh, I don't use a heart rate strap, I, I say, put that on. Yeah. Uh, because I, I can see how, how hard you're going on an absolute scale with power, but that doesn't tell me how your body's responding. And you need both to really see it. Yes. But I think the, the other interesting thing that you, you touched on, and I, I think this was the, the other, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a, solution or, or, or a really nice solution that, that you and, and Dr. Coggin found was that use of, of FTP. Because you, again, had to figure out that way to how do you take an external measure like power and, and correlate it to an internal measure like heart rate. And the one thing that you can measure with both is threshold. Mm-hmm. And you can also measure with lactate. So if you use that FTP as a, a kind of a Rosetta Stone, you can translate power to match up with your heart rate zones and, and you can, you can then use it to show which physiological energy systems are you using and what are the right zones to, to target each system. Right. And, and that was to me, that's, that's also then brought about the next step of it. You know, since heart rate is impacted by so many different things, uh, as you know, caffeine, how well you slept, how humid it is, all kinds of things, how tired you are. You know, it doesn't give you the knowledge that I, am I training in the right zone? Am I training correctly or should I stop training? And so when power came along, then all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is almost like a guarantee, right? If you ride between 91 and 105% of your FTP, you're improving your lactate threshold. You're improving this energy system. And it's like, it's almost a guarantee, like it is happening. And so when you, when you go above it, it's like, okay, well, 106 to 120. Now you're actually working on the VO2 max, your ability to transfer that oxygen into the blood, get it through all those systems and get it in, get it through the heart and back out into the the arteries. And so it was kind of like this guarantee. And not only that is, you know, you knew that you were training that zone, but then it has this time component to it. So it's like, well, okay, how long do I have to train at this intensity in order to get a benefit from it? And that was when we started to put time constraints around it and, and say, right. well, gosh, you know, VO2 max is generally between three and eight minutes. And so, well, if you train between three and eight minutes and you're between 106 and 120% of your FTP, then you're training intense enough to elicit a response and you're training long enough to elicit uh, that adaptation that you want. And so that was kind of the, the guarantee of like, well, this is really, I'm, I'm training effectively now. And 
that then took it the next step because then, then all of a sudden it was like, well, how many intervals should I do? And that was always the big question, right? It was like, well, my buddy, Chris, he's doing 10 hill repeats today. I'm going to do 15. (laughs) I'm going to do more than him. But you didn't really know, like, maybe that day you should just stay at home, you know, or maybe you should just do five because you were tired and did a hard workout the day before. But if you had a, a baseline of understanding of how many watts you could do and you know, have you done in the past and then, okay, well, I, I, I did five and I averaged 300 watts on each one and then I did six and I did 290 and I did seven and I did 280 and all of a sudden I did eight and I did 270, it's like, well, now you're not actually even training intensely enough to create a response. So now you've exhausted that system and it's time to go home. So it became this really very convenient way to assure you that you're training the most effectively. So, you know, I was very glad to hear you say that you also have your athletes uh, wear a heart rate strap. It's certainly one of my, my personal biases. That's where I think both can be very useful because if you go out and you try to do those intervals at, at your set wattage and your heart rate's 10 beats below uh, where it's, it would normally be at, that's a good sign that you're fatigued. My personal feeling is looking at both the, ha- the power and the heart rate and how they interact can sometimes give you the, the, the most valuable information. Right, right. Let me give you an example. I had um, a client training for Masters Nationals. Oh, it's been a few years ago now. And, you know, he was training really, really hard. And uh, his normal threshold heart rate would be around 173, 174. His threshold power at the time was around 340 watts. And he was training in that last phase of his build cycle before he rested for nationals. And so it was coming down to the last week, that third week before like kind of a taper week and then our rest week and then a taper week kind of deal before nationals. And he had a big weekend Saturday, Sunday calls me up on Monday, man, I'm really tired. I know you got me down for motor pacing Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I don't know if I can do it. I'm like, well, go out and see what you can do. If you can hit the the wattages that I want you to hit, then keep training. So he goes out and he he, he uh, calls me up afterwards, and we look at this power file, and he's he's riding at 350, 355, 360 watts, and his heart rate now is like at 165. So it's down almost 10 beats, but he's doing interval after interval at the wattage at higher than his normal FVP. And so he's like, oh, I don't know, I'm still pretty tired. I'm like, well, dude, you're hitting the wattages. Go, go again tomorrow. Goes out the next day, and now his heart rate doesn't get over 162, 163, but now he's hitting the same thing, 360, 360, 370, 370, 374 at the last interval he does. He's riding by on a motorcycle even, you know, motor pacing. And then he's like, dude, I'm, I'm pretty tired. I'm like, dude, you are hitting the wattages. Like, it's okay. You're still getting benefit here. You're still training. Do it again. Does it the next day. He can't even get his heart rate over 160, but he is nailing these intervals. 365, 367, 370, 375. And then it's like, he comes back and I'm like, boom, you did it. You know, perfect. Now let's rest. And, right. you, know, you know, if he had just been going by heart rate before, he wouldn't have even done those three days. And those were three really critical days because then after taper and all that stuff, he cracked out like 385 at Masters Nationals. <laughs> <You know>? Wow. <laughs> so so that's one of those things that you kind of have to remember is like, okay, if you're hitting the wattages, you're still doing, you're still improving. You know? You're still, you're still stressing that system. 
No, so that's really interesting because I read a, a study about three months ago that talked about the difference between overtraining and overreaching. Overreaching can actually be beneficial. Overtraining is not beneficial. That's where you need to stop or you're, you're going to burn out. Uh, and they said in both, you can see that heart rate depression, but they said the difference between overreaching and overtraining is overreaching, you can still hit the numbers. You can still do the workout at the same intensity, where overtraining, you can't. And in this study, when they had subjects who were overreached and overtrained and had both take a two-week rest, the overreached subjects saw a bump in their form. The overtrained subjects didn't. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, in, uh, in our, my second book with Dr. Stephen Chung, uh, Cutting Edge Cycling, you know, we talked a lot about that. He wrote a great chapter on that, and he defined it really well. We call it functional overreaching, F-O-R, and that's what we want, right? Because then that's where you're training harder than normal. You're getting, you're doing more than normal. You're getting better. So functional overreaching is when you're training hard and your body's adapting. Then there's non-functional overreaching. That's when you're still training hard, but now you're in this kind of slight downhill spiral, right? You can still do it, but you're now getting more and more fatigued. And if you do too much of non-functional overreaching, that can lead to overtraining syndrome, so OTS. And overtraining syndrome is like, that's when you got to like take a month, two months, three months, six months, a year off. And a lot of times we'll even see injuries happen during that phase. Oh, my knee is messed up or my back is messed up. Yeah. And, and that's overtraining syndrome. And so we're always in this place of functional overreaching. Okay, keep going, keep going, keep going. And how do we identify non-functional overreaching and then say stop, right? And that's really coming back to that power meter piece of it where it brings us all around and says, oh, well, look, hey, your numbers are going down progressively. You've had a, uh, a tremendous bout of training over the last two months, and you haven't really gotten any better, even with a three- or four-day rest. So now it's like you're definitely in a non-functional reaching state. We've got to rest you for a solid week, maybe even 10 days, and then boom, your body adapts, comes back, it's stronger, blah, 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 all that stuff. That's fantastic. And yeah, that's, that's one of the, one of those, those really powerful uses of power that you just couldn't see any other way. Though I guess in, in the olden days, the way we would do it is something like go and do hill repeats and, and you'd have a start and finish point and, and you'd try to hit the same times, but, but you can see so much more with, with the power. Right. 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 Yeah, absolutely. That's so true. So true. So what was the initial response. So you're, we're talking about 2003. You, you now have this software out. How did people respond to this? What, were people really receptive? Were they using it the right way or were people still trying to figure it out? What, what did you notice? Well, and, and, and from that time, you know, 2007 through 10 or 11, everybody was very excited about it because they knew it was the next thing. It was revolutionary. At that point, it had got enough momentum that it was really revolutionary. And in 2006, we also released the second version of WKO. Uh, or sorry, we changed it from Cycling Peaks. Well, I guess it was still Cycling Peaks in 2006. We still named it Cycling Peaks in 2006. And then in 2009, we released the third version of it, uh, and that's when we changed it to WKO, actually. And then we had the second edition of Training Race when the Power Meter came out in 2009, which contained the performance manager chart. And that was the next, like, wow, 
because all of a sudden it took all of your training stress score, put it in what we call chronic training load, how much of this, and which is a, you know, an exponentially weighted average over 42 days, meaning that your TSS that you, that you created on day 42, so 42 days ago, is weighted less than the, the stuff that you created this weekend. And uh, that was then that next piece of my vision of like, oh, how do we periodize this whole thing? And then we had the performance manager chart that, uh, that came about from, from uh, again, another formula that, was, that came out back in 75 but didn't have the software to do it. So, but once that happened, once the performance manager chart came out and I wrote enough articles on it and got it out there, then people were, were like, wow, I can just look at my performance manager chart. I can just collect data. I don't even have to do anything but go ride my bike and get a training stress score for every ride. And then I know, I know how fatigued I am. I know if I'm going to possibly have a peak pretty soon, uh, how rested I am. That's when it became very, very exciting. People really wanted on the boat at that point. Yeah, and I'll actually admit to you, I think my response uh, when I first saw the performance management chart was similar to uh, – to a lot of other people of just looking at it and going, no, that, that, that can't be, that that's pretty cheesy because there's no way you, you can just create a, a graph of, of your performance level. And, and I will admit to you my, my first couple of years watching it, I, I kind of wanted to prove it wrong. And I just, every time I was on a peak, every time I was on good form, there it was on the chart. And I kept having to go, yeah, this is actually kind of, uh, kind of getting me. And so it was, it was very interesting for me to to research this a few years later and discover this is really based on a good 20 years of scientific research by by people like Bannister and, and Calvert, yep. um, who are really trying to find a way to, to measure this. And I do find it very interesting. So, sorry, the, this research is called system modeling. Right. And I do find it very interesting that the, the newest research on system modeling has actually kind of come full circle and they've started using yours and, and Dr. Coggins performance management chart. I've actually seen screenshots of your performance management chart in the research. No kidding. Yep. So there was a, uh, and I'll put this reference. We always put our references up uh, when we put up the podcast, but uh, I'll put the reference up. I think it was a study. And yeah, so it was a study in 2014 called monitoring training load to understand fatigue in athletes that was published in sports medicine. And there is literally a screenshot of your performance management chart in their study. That's awesome. That's so cool. <laughs> that is so cool. That's cool. You know, and that's, I think that's what is, um, you know, been really fun. It's been a lot of hard work, guys. I mean, don't, 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 uh, don't think it hadn't over the years. It's been a lot of fun at the same time, but it's been to see that kind of thing happen, see all these other bits and, and, you know, paths that people have taken and used it. It's been really, really fun. Hey, Trevor, have you heard of this life insurance thing? Do they have that up in Canada? Chris, we are not that backwards. We do have insurance up in Canada. Just the other week, I rode my dog sled over to the insurance place to get my insurance. Thank you very much. Oh, nice. It must be snowing up there, huh? 
Oh, no, uh, yeah, it's summer. We only have three feet on the ground. <laughs> gotcha. Well, you put the wheels on the dog sled and it goes anywhere, really. Exactly. Cool. Well, hey. Those were the worst Canada <laughs> jokes. I'm now making fun of myself. <laughs> so, Chris, tell us about Health IQ. Health IQ is this life insurance company that specializes in healthy, active people like cyclists, runners, swimmers, triathletes. They're able to give us... Dog sled runners? Yeah, I think that might qualify. So they're able to give us favorable rates on life insurance, and they have a special website just for Fast Talk listeners. www.healthiq.com slash fast talk. Head over there, submit race results, screen grabs of Strava, map my run account, map my dog sled ride, whatever you've got. Any proof that you are indeed a regular cyclist and you'll get a better quote on your life insurance all through Health IQ. And the other craziest thing that happened, and a lot of people don't understand this either, is that this was a, a, a trickle up technology. So think of, uh, you know, I'm a huge Formula One fan. I love car racing and Formula One. And that's one of the biggest trickle down technologies we have. And you see that, okay, things that happen in Formula One cars, you know, 10 years later, you know, all of a sudden you got paddle shifters in regular cars, you know, you've got sequential gearboxes, you've got all these different suspension systems, all this stuff trickles down from the top racing place. Well, Power meters went the opposite way. In 2000, 2003, 2004, 2005, there were thousands of Cat 4s and Cat 5s and Cat 3s and Masters riders that knew more about training the power than any pro did. (laughs) I was going to ask, did it it come from the pros or did it come from, from the Masters athletes? It came from all these beginner racers and masters racers who wanted to get better and had the disposable income to buy one. And they bought them, figured out, got on the forums. And in 2006, Andy and I published the first edition of Training Racing with Power Meter, bought our book, read everything they could read about it. And they started doing really, really well. And then they started telling their local pros, hey, you should really get a power meter. (laughs) These things really make you a lot faster. (laughs) And at the same time, Uli at SRM, he started to to really get into sponsoring the top guys, even though they didn't really know what they were doing or what they were looking at. You would seeing them, you know, oh, look, there's somebody who's got an SRM on his bike in the magazines and stuff. And then... It kept moving up. Okay, Cat 4s had them, Cat 3s had them, Cat 2s had them, Cat 1s had them. And then those Cat 1s started turning pro. And then all of a sudden that became, oh gosh, I can't remember what year it was. It was probably 2000, maybe it was 2009 or something, 2010, when I opened up uh, like VeloNews. And every picture of every pro in there had a power meter on their bike. And I was like, that, that's the first time. Right. Every single pro had a power meter on the bike. And now it's like now it's really ubiquitous. And then from there, it then became trickle down because then all of a sudden you only saw pros with power meters on their bikes. Then people started talking about wattage. And when you hear pros were being interviewed and coaches who coached, worked with pros and teams talked about power and wattage and FTP. 
And so then the new riders coming into it after 2010, they kind of came in and said, oh, it was more of a trickle-down thing. But actually, it was the opposite <laughs> in the history of it. I can understand why um, pros may have been resistant at first because they tend to be pretty dogmatic in their thinking sometimes. I'm just curious, why is it only reaching Japan and China? Well, I can under maybe understand China. They haven't had a much of a cycling culture um, until recent times. And But why why have people been more, maybe more resistant to this training philosophy and the science behind it? Like you said, cyclists are very dogmatic and they are very much in um, the, uh, oh, what you call it, not old school, but just resistant to change. You know, people, they're just resistant to change. Uh, and I think that's, it's a very unique, cyclists are a unique group of people. We are, <laughs> we kind of have to admit it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and two, I think that's also, for me, I love numbers. You know, I, I'm, I got strays in all my statistics classes and all math and stuff, even though I didn't major in any of that stuff in college. But I love that piece of it. And so for me, having numbers and data while I'm doing the sport that I love, that added this great new layer. It like made this, you know, it, it refreshed my enthusiasm for the sport because it was something new to learn, right? It was something exciting that I need. I could, I could, I could understand my body better and, and predict things and do all this stuff. And so I think for other people, that's definitely not the case. And it becomes this like, oh, I'm slave to the numbers. Oh, you know, I've lost the freedom of going for a bike ride and just the wind in my hair. And, oh, I'm just going to, ah, you know, I'm riding. I'm going to ride until I get tired. Turn around. You know? and, and so some of that freedom, I think, has has for some people like oh, you know I'm a slave to this number and and quite frankly it doesn't work for those kind of people I remember I had a, a client a very very talented woman endurance athlete she won the La Ruta Conquistadores mountain bike race trans Alps all kinds of stuff very very good and, and we got a power meter on her bike she would you know call she called me up after like I don't know month or so and had this big hard workout and just in tears, you know, just crying, just like, Oh my, Oh my God, you know, did her dog die? Did something happen? I'm like, Oh, what happened? And she's like, I'm like, calm down, calm down. What's wrong? What's wrong? She's like, I, I, could, I couldn't do the workout. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> I, I was supposed to do 190 Watts for, for 30 minutes. And I only did 188. And it was like, Oh my God, tears. Right. Because she was wanted to make nail it right every single one, and that was what that was her personality. So, I literally had her husband and like, okay, look, dude, you're gonna tape over her power meter, <laughs> and and just tape over it. So so basically, I just came up with words to to describe the training and said, hey, go this hard and this hard and this hard, and, and so that she still got the workouts in. He got the power meter off her bike when he came in downloaded it and emailed me the data <laughs> so I can see what that's, was going on. <laughs> that's great. You know, it's, it's interesting because I've, uh, with a lot of the top pros that I've interviewed over the years, I've heard a similar theme that, and, and I am going to say all athletes, th these numbers are very powerful and very useful, but to be your best as a cyclist, you do need to learn the field. And what, I, what I've heard consistently with all top pros 
is they're very good at knowing the feel of cycling. So when they're at threshold, they know what threshold feels like. When they're doing that that hard five-minute VO2 max power, they know what that feels like. Um, and I will always say your, your top time trial is in the world – Numbers are useful, but if you covered up their screen, they could still do pretty close to their best time trial just by the feel of it. And I had noticed with some of the older pros that I talked to who grew up before power meters, even when heart rate straps weren't that common, they said exactly what you just said, which is they didn't like a number telling them what to do. And actually, we we a couple of months ago interviewed Ned Overin, and, and he almost sound fearful of a power meter because it's like, I don't want to see those numbers. I, I, <laughs> I just don't want the, the numbers affecting my workouts. Right, right. And, and, and that's, I mean, that's an important recognition. If you're that person and you're going to be depressed by the numbers because you're not having a good day, then maybe power meter is not for you. But you also have to go into it and realize like, hey, you know what? This is life, man. You have bad days. You have good days. You have amazing days. It's life. It's the same thing on the bike. You know, you're going to go out there and some days you're going to feel like a million bucks and you're going to kill it. And the other days you're going to kind of feel, eh. you know, uh, some days you're going to be like, oh, my gosh, my legs felt like lead. I'm I suck. I'm terrible. Right. And, and that's just the way it is. You just have to go into it. For me, it's an attitude of knowing that and be like, hey, look, you know what? I've got these things I need to do. I got to do four times 10 minutes. They all got to be around 350 watts. If I can nail those four things at 350 watts, that's my main goal for the day. Whether I felt like crap or not, it doesn't really matter. Now, if I go out and the first one is 330 and I'm like struggling at 330 and I can't even do it, then I know I shouldn't do the workout. So for me and for most of most athletes that I work with and all that we work with at Peaks Coaching Group, that gives us confidence because then it's like, hey, you know, just, just turn around and go home. You know, go home. Just stop riding. You're not, you're not fresh enough to get the training in you need to have in. So it, it takes that ability to, to have that perspective, so to speak. And unfortunately, the other thing is the, the thing no software is ever going to fix is that day where you go out and your, your power meter battery is running low or you forget to calibrate and <laughs> you're seeing absolutely horrible numbers or the best numbers you've ever seen in your life. And, and sorry, those aren't actually your numbers. <laughs> yeah, that's a really bad day when I have to tell that to an athlete. And they're really proud of it. They're like, oh, man, oh, sorry, but your power meter, you forgot to do the zeroing of a power meter. Yeah, that's always usually tough. <laughs> yeah. Golich also noticed that not everyone was excited about using power meters. He shared with us his thoughts on both why that was and why he felt this was not a tool to pass up. And so then I could actually tell the coaches, because my job was to analyze the data, like you said you were doing this you're not doing that you're doing this and here it is and the coaches there was a little bit resistance because there's a learning curve with it for the physiologist say andy coggin and a lot of the others that maybe weren't at the elite level in coaching so they didn't have those barriers to battle against themselves with so a lot of the new and younger coaches would, would adapt it readily and, and quickly and a lot of the athletes the older athletes were slower to change. The younger athletes found out right away, if I do this, I get this power. And so it was, it was easy with that part of it. Now, as we get more analytics involved to this day, 
it's still people take it for granted that they actually know to a, a high degree of accuracy what they're actually doing. And so everyone underestimates that today. And that, so that brings me to the, the second question I wanted to ask you. And I know the answer is huge. Over the last 20 years, what do you feel are the major ways in which power has revolutionized training and, uh, and coaching? I think just the accuracy of it. I don't think it has changed that much because of the, you understand the demands of the event. So people take it for granted that if this person can climb after 10 days in the Tour de France at 6.2 watts per kilo or 6 watts per kilo, it gets them this. And it's in within a one or two placings in the Tour de France and they understand it. That's really pretty accurate when you're talking about the top, you know, one or two percent of the sport. So I don't think it's the main principle has changed. I, I would say the technology and the software I'd use those two entities to say we had two percent error and then we had a version that was about five percent error in kind of pretty decent conditions, no big temperature changes. Now we're to the 1% error or less in those same conditions. So what happened was the power meters got more accurate, and then the software got more accurate to know where the errors in the power meters and where the bad data was coming from, spikes, bad readings, and so on. So that improved the power meters. The power meters got better. Then the software got better. I would say it's just been a seesaw of that. I don't think the main principle, I guess we're pretty lucky that Uli and SRM created such a good product to start with that now we had a good, pretty accurate power measuring system, and now we just found out where to take the back data out. So it hasn't made a, a major change in the approach that the top athletes are, are taking to training. It sounds like you're saying it's just opening up a window to a very accurate window to what's going on with their training and whether it's producing the results they're looking for. Basically, there's always been these really smart people, whether they've been in aerodynamics or altitude training or whatever the the physiological side or the metabolic side, there's always been or mechanical meaning aerodynamics. So now we actually just had the tool that measured the work outcome. So for example, okay, you have power. Now we can take that power and use the aerodynamics to make, to understand. So for a quick example is you can go in the wind tunnel. You could have gone in the wind tunnel before you had an SRM and determine what your aerodynamic drag is and improve it. But that doesn't necessarily mean you could have produced power. So now we're just marrying those two things together in a more analytical manner. And even to the local person, you know, small town, coach, small town person in the local series can do that with uh, some of the aerodynamic and software calculations with the same power meter. So it's from the high level uh, on down to the, you know, regional level that you can measure that with the power meter. Obviously, Hunter, you're a, a big proponent of power meters and this method of training. I'm just curious if you see any limitations to power or what what comes next in terms of bringing it to yet another level? 
Well, I think that we, we launched WKO4 uh, in 2015, and that became more individualized. And that, that really, that was the whole thrust of that software. I've since, I'm no longer an owner of Training Peaks. My, I sold all my equity in 2014, stayed on through October 2015 to, to get the software launched and make sure everything was going well. But the whole thrust of that, that software and what it is right now is to be more individualized. Because one of the things that we found using Andy's classic power training levels is that not everybody fits in those levels perfectly. And we realized it really early on. I mean, it wasn't like this is something that we just discovered. But, you know, our, our VO2 max range is 106 to 120%. Well, we had people who could do five minutes, you know, in that three to eight minutes. They should only be able to do like around 115% or FTP. They can do like 150% of their FTP for five minutes. So we learn really early on the individual nature of their physiology. And that was one thing we said, okay, well, even looking at anaerobic capacity, well, we it's pretty much from 30 seconds to two minutes, but everybody kind of switches those energy systems at different time durations. And so once we, we had better, again, better software, Kevin was – is still genius programming like off the charts, more computer power, all that jazz. We're able to really figure out, okay, where does where do these switches happen? Where do you go from neuromuscular power to anaerobic capacity, from anaerobic capacity to kind of being becoming more aerobic at VO2 max? Where is the blend in those two places? And so that's really what the this next step has been about. From here it's going to be a, I don't know, it's, it's hard to say what is the next step because we've got left and right power, which is amazing. You know, I love to have both left and right power. And that's a whole nother other conversation because uh, you can learn a tremendous amount about that. Now, also notice you've jumped on board with uh, Leomo. So the getting the on the road biomechanical analysis. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's, I think, those are the kind of things that are really future-oriented. I think we'll see more of um, more devices that are measuring other things, like the Leomo Type R, measuring, you know, the, the leg angular range. How does your foot move throughout the pedal stroke? What happens with your hips as you pedal? I mean, that device has the potential to be revolutionary again. I've given them some pretty cool ideas that they really need to, to implement. And if they can implement them, it could be really, really exciting. Because right now, right, it has to be addictive, right? So, and that's something that, that we all think of, right? What happens if you guys came to work this morning and you left your phone at home? You would have turned around and gone back and gone and got it, <laughs> right? right? Right. You're totally addicted to your phone. And same kind of thing with a power meter. Right. It's become an addictive technology because it's like, well, gosh, I'm running on a power meter every day. And if your power meter oh, I forgot my head unit, like you don't even want to go for a ride. And, and, and again, that's a good thing and a bad thing. But this kind of technology has to be addictive to be really adopted at a really high level. And so. That's, that's the next step for the OMO. I think there, there's another device that's going to have breathing rate, respiration rate. It's got some pretty neat respiration type stuff that's coming out. I think it has potential actually to replace heart rate. There's some pretty neat stuff that you can do with respiration rate at a, at a high sample level. 
um, that might even be better than heart rate. So that could be a potential. So I think that we'll see those things coming out. I think that the integration of them will, will be the, the challenge. Uh, how do I get all this data into one piece of software, you know, without having to, to do a lot of work and make it easy on all the athletes who are using it? So we uh, we experimented with Leoma. Chris and I actually wrote an article in the in the fall about climbing, where we we got uh, Seth Coos to go and destroy Chris and I in a, a couple hill climbs, and we used the the Leomo for that. What I came out of, I mean, besides the fact that it gave us a, a whole wealth of information, is if there would be a way to take all this biomechanical data from Leomo and correlate it with power so you could start sending athletes out and saying, okay, if we fix this in your, your biomechanics, how does that impact your power? Right. That, that would add a whole element that, that we've never had before. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's where that's super exciting technology is that you can start to, again, see what's happening between the left and right leg and, and where is your dead spot. And by the way, you guys, I mean, that, that whole Bellow News magazine was awesome. I mean, kudos to you guys. I was so excited when I got that and started reading through that. And I was like, wow, this is excellent. So great job. Oh, cool. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. That was awesome. But I mean, that, and that's, that's the next thing, right? I mean, it's, you know, and I think that's where heart rates were, heart rates revolutionary, power meters revolutionary. Leomo has the potential to be revolutionary, but at the same time, there's these other pieces in there that become evolutionary. Is there another revolution? You know, I'm sure there is. I would say the next revolution is the virtual thing. I mean, you know, if you guys heard, but you know, there's a hundred thousand dollars right now for the winter season in real money racing in Zwift. <laughs> it's like, dude, the cyclogen thing that I'm working on with these guys, I mean, this is real money. I mean, when was the last time you went to a bike race at a hundred thousand dollars? <laughs> Right. So anybody can win. It's like, OK, wait, I don't have to be a pro. I can be a three point two watts per kilogram guy and I could win the ten thousand dollar purse prize. And all of a sudden you get ten thousand people doing it. Uh, so it's like ten thousand people times seventy nine bucks. We're talking huge money here. What happens when the prize is a million dollars and you see Peter Sagan? racing in Zwift for a million dollar first place prize for an hour and a half. And you have thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people watching the live feed on Facebook. And Peter Sagan is there with cameras on him. And you got, you know, all the top pros and they don't have to split it with their teammates. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right? That is coming. I mean, that is going to be revolutionary. It's 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 going to be an interesting road here in the next couple of years. I, I think what I, I love about that is, I mean, we've been talking about a lot of revolutions that are, are very scientific and are going to help your training. There's nothing inherent about Zwift that you can do better on Zwift that, that you can't do on the road, but it incorporates this really important other side of training that we sometimes forget, which is the social and enjoyment side. This is a tool that allows you to ride with people that you couldn't ride with before. I'm sitting up in Canada right now with two feet of snow on the ground and it's freezing cold and it frankly allows me to train. And you're not staring at a brick wall. It actually can make the training enjoyable. 
That's the only thing we have to figure out is getting people to actually put their real weight in. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's going to be, I mean, that's going to get figured out, right? I mean, that's yep. I mean, like this, this CVR thing is they're going to have doping control at the actual final event. The, you know, the engineers from the, the company that's supplying the trainers are actually going to be there certifying the trainers. And uh, so they're in live, in person, right? You got to actually be there. That's going to be figured out. And I think the weight thing will get figured out. It's going to, the, the weight thing is going to be a challenge because what are you going to do? Are you going to have to get on your scale, take a picture of the weight beside a newspaper that shows the date or something? <laughs> um, I don't, I, I don't know the solution. Yeah. So, that, that's that's going to be a, a bit of a challenge because it's like, well, uh, hey, you know, that's your your wife's toes. <laughs> you got your wife on the scale. <laughs> well, so it was it was funny, and they've since taken these down. But I think it was about a year and a half ago. Um, I looked on Strava um, because they they show all the KOMs from Swift, and pretty much all the KOMs were held by hundred pound women. <laughs> because you had these 200-pound guys who could put out 400 watts registering in Zwift as 100-pound women and just cruising around at 7 watts per kilogram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm confident it will be figured out. Uh, it's just going to take some time. And and with with, with this, it's, it, it is – I think that's the next revolution in, in this. So um, – We'll we'll see more and more of it as we as we go along, and and it may be one of these deals where you have to buy a certified trainer, or you have to go to a a weigh in. You know, maybe there are certified places like bike shops that have certified scales, and you have to go and weigh in. Uh, and when you want to race, you go and and you actually go to that area, and can you race there? And then that counts. So I mean, I think all this stuff will get figured out. Maybe the simple solution is going to uh, the the manufacturers of the trainers, and they could potentially build a, a scale into those. Well, that's a good idea. Because then you're getting their weight while they're riding, so right. so you can't get your your kid to step on the scale for you. Right, right. Well, you know, and that's all a power meter is, right? I mean, it's scale. I mean, you can get your weight off your power meter. They're not programmed to do that, but you could you could certainly just zero it and you just stand with your feet level on it and it gets your weight. That's a great idea. So let me see if I can, I can summarize all this, the, this history and, and the various revolutions that, that happened along the way. But it, it really seems like that conference in, in 1999 was, was really a pivotal point where you just had all the right people in, in a room together. And it sounds like the, the, the first step was coming up with some sort of software that allowed you to analyze this data and start looking for trends. The, the next revolution was for Dr. Coggin and you to figure out a way to take this external measure and make it physiological, have it show what's going on internally in the body, which, which to me, you can't underemphasize the importance of that because you can't really use it as an effective training tool until it can show what's happening with the individual. And that's your normalized power, your TSS, your intensity factor. And, and right at the center of that was FTP, because FTP was your Rosetta Stone that allowed you to translate between the internal and the external. It sounds like the, the next big, big revolution was that ability to see the long-term trends. So we're really talking about your performance management chart here. And I know we haven't really touched on that at all, 
but we have actually covered the performance management chart in, in, in a past podcast, if anybody wants to, uh, to hear a little more about that. And, and like I said, I, I ate a lot of crow on that one because I thought it was a cheesy looking graph. And I now tell my athletes all the time, I am amazed how accurate it is and, and how well it gets somebody's performance level and shows what's going on with them. And it sounds like you're saying now the, the revolution that's incur- occurring is this individualization. So where FTP was critical for, as this Rosetta Stone, now we're looking at, at multiple markers uh, of the individual. So really seeing or individualizing the, the, their different energy systems and what sort of power they can put out at those different energy systems. There, there's a, a curve that you invented for that that, uh, forgive me, uh, power that's the... Curve. Thank you. Power duration curve. I always forget the name of that, and I don't know why. <laughs> so that's kind of the current revolution. And then you're saying the the next revolution is both this virtual side and potentially integration. So bringing in biomechanical tools and, and multiple other metrics that, that can all correlate. Is that yeah. a fairly good summary of, of how this has all progressed? You got it. Absolutely dead on the spot. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's pretty amazing. It really is, and it's uh, it has been incredible to see it over all these years, uh, and how people have adopted it at different levels, and how people come into it. And again, just boggles my mind to think that you know all these new people who've never had power meters and gotten into cycling in a year or two, and then now they have a power meter and all these different power meter companies and just continues to uh, blow me away at how ubiquitous it's become. And uh, that, that I think has been really exciting. And we've just started work on our third edition of training and racing with a power meter. Uh, Andy and I are starting to work on that. And, you know, we've got all this new individualization type information that we're going to put in that. Uh, We're getting rid of our power tools chapter because, there's so many power meters out there now and they change daily. It seems like there's just better resources on the internet for that. So we'll just get rid of that chapter and we'll make room for some of the new things that have come out. So, uh, I hope this time next year we'll, uh, be talking about the third edition and have that baby in print. Well, we'd love to do that if you're willing to, to join us. Absolutely. Well, now that we've discussed the, the history and talked about, a number of revolutions in ways people can train through power. Maybe we'll turn it over to Hunter first and and have him address how people can take all of this information and this fascinating discussion and apply it to their own training. One of the greatest things about having a power meter is it's relatively simple, right? So it's, it's as deep as you want to go, but also very simple. So stick it on your bike, go out, start capturing data, and then go do some testing. You got to find out what your FTP is. The best one is go for an hour, do an hour FTP time trial. If you can't do that, 20 minutes, you know, 5% plus or minus is probably going to be pretty close. Then you need to find your strengths and weaknesses. We call it the power profile. Came out with it back in 2003. Five-second sprint, a one-minute all-out effort, and a five-minute VO2 max effort. Then you know your strengths and weaknesses. From there, at that point, continue to collect more data Start training through your training zones that are defined by that FTP. So use the training zones. Uh, you can use the Coggin Classic levels or the individualized levels that are in WKO4 either way. Uh, and then, then that way you know you're training effectively. You're not wasting your time. And when we start to pull all that together, start looking at your performance manager chart to see, hey, when am I having a peak? Uh, when did I have peak numbers? 
How tired am I? How long can I sustain hard training? What is the ramp rate of our chronic training load? Lots of different individual metrics in there. And finally, don't ever forget that you're training to the demands of the event, right? So whatever your event is, you know, if you are a single speed, 24-hour mountain bike racer that only races in Arizona, then you should define those demands and train to those demands. Okay. So, and that's part of figuring that out. So you got to get the data from one of those events and then you analyze it and then you go and train and try and simulate that as best as you can. So we're always coming back to that. What are the demands of the event and how do I train best for the demands of the event? Going and playing a bunch of ice hockey in Arizona is not going to make you a better 24-hour mountain bike solo <laughs> rider, okay? So you got to train the demands of the event. And that's really it. You know, putting all those things together is, uh, is what the basic principles of power training are. Excellent. Trevor? So I think I really have one take home, but it, it's a little complicated. So for anybody who's been listening to our podcast from the beginning, you know that, that I've uh, traditionally very much been a heart rate guy. And I will always admit when I, I feel I need to, to eat some crow. And while I am still a heart rate guy and think it's very important, I've certainly had to eat some some crow on power. And I did that as I learned more and more about the, the history of power and, and the tools for power and learned that you and Dr. Coggins and Dean and, and, and Kevin and, and all these people who are involved in the beginning figured out how to take this external measure and have it show our physiology. And to me, that makes it a, a really valuable tool. So my take-homes are, I know we all love to see what's the best one minute you've put out, what's the best five minute, what's the best 20 minute you've put out. That's fun to look at and it's motivating when you see those numbers go up. But remember, there is more to these tools than that. And ultimately, what you want to be doing is seeing what's physiologically going on in you. Looking at your top 20-minute power is great, but the more important thing is what is the true power that you're putting out at threshold and then be able to train at that power so that you're targeting that energy system. So always remember, when you are training, ultimately what you're trying to do is affect your physiology and don't lose sight of that. And so the second part of my take-home is I think the, you get the most value in in using both. So have the power, have the heart rate, and look at the relationship of the two. That's going to give you the most valuable information. And, and I loved, Hunter, that you talked about really what you see being the future is the integration, is even pulling in even more metrics like the biomechanical side so that you can get this complete picture uh, of the athlete. So that's, I think that's, that's my big take home. Great. Excellent. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, The Velo News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between VeloNews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, Hunter Allen, Dean Golich, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.